0: Welcome to today's program from the Commonwealth Club of California. You can find more of our online programs at commonwealthclub.org slash online. I want to express our appreciation for their generous support for today's program to Gilead and Comcast. Thank you very much for making this possible. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and your co-host for today's program. We're going to be doing a discussion of the iconic AIDS Memorial quilt. We're going to get into its past, present, and its future. Now, my co-host is a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors, and she is the producer and host of the Michelle Miao Show. She is, of course, Michelle Miao. Michelle, good to see you again.
1: Oh, I'm so excited, John. It's always great to see you, and of course, excited for this incredible talk. So thank you to AIDS 2020 for partnering with us and putting this together. And now, I'm very excited and pleased to Introduce our panelists. We have John Cunningham, who has been the executive director of the National AIDS Memorial since 2009. Uh, John has held numerous nonprofit board level positions, having served as president of the Castro Community Business Alliance, board chair of the New Hampshire AIDS Foundation, vice president of Folsom Street Events, and also board member of Positive Resource Center. He currently resides in Oakland with his husband and dog, Billy. Mike Smith is the co-founder of the Names Project AIDS Memorial Quilt and served as managing director from 1987 to 1989. During his tenure, the quilt grew from an idea to more than 18,000 memorial panels in 20 countries. In 1989, the organization was nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize, and the film about the quilt, Common Threads, received the Academy Award for Best Documentary. He returned to the Names Project in 1996 to produce the last full-scale display of the quilt in Washington, D.C. that year. Mike recently rejoined the quilt team as a consultant to the National AIDS Memorial, the new stewards of the quilt. And last but not least, we have Gert McMullen, which... I really shouldn't read her bio because that'll just give the entire story. But Gert is the quilt conservator and production manager at National AIDS Memorial. And so welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us on this very uh, special program. And I I should say special day. We're all together, Mm. virtually at least. (laughs) Um, Well, let's let's start with the quilt. Really. Uh, the AIDS Memorial Quilt was founded by the Names Project back in 1985, I think, technically. And it was during a, a candlelight march, um, remembering the assassination of Supervisor Harvey Milk and Mayor Moscone, that activist Cleve Jones um, had, uh, he and some others had written names on these signs of those that we had we we lost to hiv aids and those signs would then um, be taped to the san francisco federal building and he looks up at all of these signs posted at the building and it reminded him of a patchwork quilt and so inspired and the names project was born Uh, i mentioned earlier in in introducing you that mike and Gert you're both part of the the founding of the quilt um but we'll start with with gert because you know this the the uh of offering and lending your talent to actually to sew the panels together is such an incredible and special story so let's get started with you um and in, in your personal story and being a part of the formation of the quilt
2: well in um 1987 i was kind of losing my mind you know my so many of my friends were dying and I was searching out someplace to, to help. And, uh, somebody told me to call Cleve Jones. I did that. And then six weeks later, uh, there was the first meeting at the women's building on 16th street. And that's where I met Mike Smith. Um, I had brought two panels in that I'd already sewn up to give to him and, uh, which were tough having to leave them with him. <laughs> I I didn't know who he was, but that's where I began. And, um, then I just, you know, then find, Mike and Cleve found a spot on the in the Castro, and uh, they called us up, and we had another meeting down there, and um, that and that's how I began.
0: Gert, there are a lot of people who see things happen and uh, don't become involved, and f- even far fewer who become involved but don't stay with it for a long time. If if you would, I, I know this gets personal, but I mean, wh- what what? What made you be someone who decided, I have to be a part of this?
2: Well, I I, I had been going to Shanti, do, helping at Shanti, and then helping with and going to hospitals and all. And I just needed some place that I could be around people who hurt like I did. Um, I don't know if you can even imagine it, being in a room with 300 people and being told that, you know, in five years, they'll all be dead. That's how my life was looking. I mean, everybody I knew was dying and didn't know what it was, and I was losing my mind. I needed a place that I could be around people who hurt and that I could talk about it. Nobody wanted to talk about them. They just, oh, you know, those guys died, you know, don't talk about it. And um, it, I've always been the type that kind of jumps into things, and the, when I'm the most afraid of it, I jump into the center of it, and that's kind of what I did. But it was mainly that I was, you know, when I met Mike and some other people, they I could tell that they felt the same way. I wasn't alone anymore. There was somebody else that felt like me, and that was really comforting to me. And why I stayed it for forever for all these years is that it's still the same thing. It's just comforting to me. I need it. Um, it gets me through my life every day.
1: At the time there was such stigma. Uh, there, there, was not. There were not a. It, it was such a hard time. I think you know, Gert, in talking to you, you had mentioned. Um, Is the darkest era in you know the the history of the HIV/AIDS epidemic, and I think that it's super important to describe that, to describe the fact that the quilt, uh, the memorial. The, the conference and all these things that would, would end up being what it is today was a way to respond to the stigma, a way to respond to the government ignoring you know, people's lives um, you know, and people not even being memorialized after passing away. That was during a time when you know, there weren't even funerals held.
2: For me, it was a lot about anger, too. I mean, I was just so angry. And I went on that march with Cleve at the federal building. I put Rogers' name up there. But I was just so angry that nobody was doing anything and nobody seemed to care. And uh, they were just letting my friends die. And um, I mean, and I finally had found some people that I could share that with and my anger and all because they felt the same way.
1: Mike, you want to add something to
3: that? In the mid the 80s were such a dark time in the Castro. Uh, in the ten block radius of Castro and Market, a thousand men had already died, and another two thousand were sick and being taken care of by friends and neighbors and lovers but it wasn't it still wasn't public. you'd walk out on the street and you 'd pass people who you knew you were probably never going to see again you 'd be saying hello, but what you were really saying was goodbye but the community hadn't acknowledged that grief uh, and when we first started making the quilt panels, the panels are three feet by six feet the size of a grave. And that was done on purpose because for that first display in Washington, D.C. in October of 87, we wanted to show the world how much space these people would take it up if they could have been at that march. Um, there was, as Gert said, a lot of anger. You know, a lot of us felt like we were all, every one of the 300 people in the room that Gert talks about, we were all going to die. And we were going to die alone and forgotten, ignored by our government and swept under the rug. And the quilt, as much as it's as beautiful as it is when you look at it now, It was a desperate cry for help. It was a people that were desperate to be heard. And, you know, when Cleve first looked up at the building and said the word quilt, you think of your grandmother taking care of you when you're sick. You think of chicken soup. You think of warm children cuddled in a bed. And none of those were the metaphors that were being used at that time to talk about AIDS. It was clearly, you have AIDS, we don't, it's your problem. And the quilt, I think, really broke through that. It spoke to middle America. And it also created a a hub in the Castro where people could come and gather and cry on a shoulder when they just got a test result or come in right after a friend had died. And Gert would sit there and talk with them and talk to them about how to make a panel or just spend quality time just listening. There really wasn't anything like it. We became a de facto community center in the heart of the epidemic.
0: Did you know that at the very beginning this this would be sending messages both to the general public as well as the LGBTQ community or was the original intent thinking that well this is an internal thing expressing our grief
3: we had always hoped that the quilt would break through to middle america and open a dialogue i think that summer though was very difficult we had we were making panels by the dozens. We had an entire workshop filled with people coming in after work to create memorial panels for loved ones. And we were getting panels from around the country, but they were mostly, they were coming from New York and LA and Chicago and the gay hubs. And by the end of the summer, we had about half of what we thought we needed to really make a statement. And then, I mean, something really, really remarkable happened. We had put out a flyer in the mail to grief counselors across the country, And and asked them to share it with people and said, if you wanted to make a panel, send it to us by September 15th and we'll get it sewn in and onto the mall a month later, which I really regret now. But uh, (laughs) it just about killed us. We had in those few days around September 15th, we had 800 pieces of overnight mail,
4: Mm -hmm.
3: packages from mothers mostly in every state, families that had lost a son who had probably died in one of the urban centers and, and had left home. Families that couldn't share their grief with their pastor, couldn't tell anyone in their community what their son had died of. And in that loneliness, they made a quilt panel and they sent it to a bunch of gay men in the Castro. I mean, how desperate do you have to be <laughs> to do that? And, yeah. and it changed the world for us because I think for the first time when that mail arrived, we realized we were not alone. That what we were going through in our neighborhood, there were, we had allies all across the country. And when we got to the mall with the quilt, it spoke volumes. It wasn't just a gay memorial. It represented every state in the union and families from all across the country. And it was part of what broke it through and changed the dialogue around AIDS in the country.
1: Let's talk about, you know, changing the dialogue. I think, you know, it was uh, uh, within years of each other, the quilt and then the First Aids um, International Conference, uh, and then the memorial. Uh, John would love to hear when the memorial actually was was born or founded, and and kind of what led to um, where, where what led to the, the to 1996, basically.
4: So, you know, I think it's uh, it's no coincidence that uh, these two iconic memorials, uh, projects were created within years of each other, within miles of each other in San Francisco. Uh, San Francisco has long uh, stood as a, as I like to say, uh, the, the conscience touchstone of our nation. And as Mike and Gerd have shared, you know, there was such a sense of hopelessness at that time in, in the community. Um, individuals trying to figure out uh, how to go on, uh, so much loss and so much darkness that was happening. But on the other side of that, the other side of the coin, The community was so alive. Um, The marches, uh, people were showing up in so many different ways. However, it uh, it worked for them, whether they were caregiving or they were cooking or they were sewing, whatever it was, the community was alive and doing it. You know, memorials are about memories and memories are about never forgetting. And so the National AIDS Memorial, or what was originally called the AIDS Memorial Grove, was conceived in 1988 by a group of of individuals, you know, much like uh, the quilt. However, uh, one was an activist tool and one was more of a contemplative uh, memorial space, as I believe Mike likes to share. Uh, the, the the activist tool goes out and does its work in teaching and people get tired uh, out there on the road and they come back and they find a place of peace and serenity, which is the uh, now the National AIDS Memorial. I also think it speaks volumes about what was happening in our city at that time, that the city mothers and fathers and leadership under the, um, the mayor at the time was Mayor Agnos uh, gave 10 and a half acres of Golden Gate Park to be yet to be formed organization because they knew and they felt because they were losing their staff, they were losing their neighbors. It was it was impacting the fabric of of our community and of our and the totality of our city. We were 10 years into the epidemic and nearly 15,000 San Franciscans had already lost been lost to the epidemic. Those of us who picked up the BAR could remember thumbing page after page after page of obituaries that were, you know, barely the size of a postage stamp. And so the the work began, and it was a derelict site that was abandoned. And uh, in the first six months, there were uh, 60 dump truck loads uh, taken out, and the work began to transform that landscape. And as I like to say, it not only was transforming the landscape, it was transforming the lives of the individuals that came to do the work, to pull the weeds just like the quilt, they were sewing panels. And as, as I like to say, the healing was happening on either side of the shovel. As Gert just said, she needed to be around people that were going through what she was going through. And I think that we all know that in life we have our journeys and our difficult times. So that's what the Grove was about as well. Um, many remember that, that uh, Nancy Pelosi ran for Congress, um, taking Burton's uh, seat uh, you know, uh, on an AIDS platform. And her, when she was sworn into Congress, uh, you are always given the opportunity to uh, uh, to address the speaker and you're always told to be deferential and say, uh, thank you. Uh, the, I'm, I'm just happy to be here and thank you very much. And of course she did not. Uh, our our uh, uh, Nancy Pelosi has never been deferential and she stood and said, I'm here to give a voice to AIDS and I will not stop because I ask all of you, if you had lost 15,000 of your constituency, would you say this body is doing enough? And I think we all know the answer to that. So she had spent time coming to the, to the Grove and doing work and seeing the power of what was going on, where people coming together and uh, spending time in nature because there's so much healing. She wrote the Bill of Congress and it was signed into law in 1996 by President Clinton. So those, those of us that are viewing here and that are San Franciscans, you know, we should be so honored that the, through the work and the passion and the commitment of a community that created something out of nothing, that took the pain and despair and turned it into hope, and transformed a once derelict site into not only a national memorial, but an excellent Urban Landscape Award winning site. And that's the power of what, what happens when you take grief and you take heartache and you channel it into doing something for the betterment of society. And the quilt stands for that, and the AIDS and Memorial does as well.
0: John, how did the plan for the uh, the memorial site come together? How did you... How did they decide how it was to be used?
4: There were, uh, there were a number of different sites that were, uh, that were looked at and were considered. We uh, settled on what is the, known as the De La Viaga Dell, and uh, De La Viaga Dell was uh, bequeathed to the city by Jose Vicente De La Viaga, who was a large Spanish land baron in San Francisco, and ironically, um, descendants of, his, of, of, of Jose's uh, had lost an individual to the epidemic, to AIDS. And the site had, turned, had fallen into a great disrepair uh, because the economy in the city in those days uh, was the economy in general and our nation was, was suffering. And so the tax base was low, so the park system didn't, couldn't maintain it. And so there was a, 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 a committee that was, was created and began the work. And what really happened was is there was a charrette that was done uh, for design. Those of you that visit the memorial, you'll see that there uh, are all broken circles, um, which symbolizes the broken circles of life. Then we lose our friends and family. And uh, they began a process of design. All of the color palettes that are planted within the memorial are all soft and muted and contemplative. Um, and its a it's got waterfalls and creeks, and it is a dell, so it's a geographic bowl. So when you actually descend into the memorial, you indeed feel as though you're, you're leaving the city and the feeling of the city. Um, over the last uh, uh, 28 years, over a quarter million volunteer hours have been dedicated to the space. When we began the work, um, in those days, anything that had the word AIDS in its name would have been siphoning money off from direct services. And so the organization made a strategic decision from its founding that it would not take public money. And we have stayed true to that um, because we never wanted money to be be, uh, siphoned off and directed towards us that would have gone to research, direct care, housing, medical, and the like. So um, on the third Saturday of every month, we continue to have volunteer work days uh, where the community gathers together. Unfortunately, those can't happen virtually because the impact you can't, you can't pull a weed virtually, but we look forward to hopefully gathering again and and, and reengaging on that. So that's, that's sort of how the memorial was created.
1: If you're joining us, we want you to be engaged. We want you to ask questions. And so please do. Um, and John will ask these questions, be in the conversation with us. Um, uh, Mike, you know, we mentioned that the the first showing of the the quilt was in D.C., uh, and then throughout uh, its its years, it has traveled. And so I think, you know, we'd love to share some of those stories of of how it's traveled, where it's been, and maybe share also um, some stories of meeting folks or you know relationships maybe that you didn't think that you would encounter that you did by being a part of this project. Um, We'll start with Mike.
3: Um, Wow. I think a lot of us felt like we were doing that first display in 1987 on the mall and then we were going to go back to the rest of our lives, that for some reason the dam was going to open and the world was going to change and we wouldn't have to do this anymore. Uh, And uh, it didn't work out that way. Um, We had so many panels from around the country that for the next two years, we put together two different national tours, and and poor Gert lived in a Winnebago and drove across America <laughs> twice, all the way around, for two years basically, um, visiting cities with a team of uh, wonderful staff from the Names Project. All the men are dead now, and all the women are still going. Uh, and uh, and in each each Monday, we'd drive to the next city. Tuesday was a bit of a day off. Wednesday, you'd you teach volunteers what to do. Thursday, the walkways went out. Friday, it opened to the public. It lasted through Sunday. You packed it back up, and you got in the Winnebago, and you moved to the next city. And uh, and, and and Gert's Gert's most of Gert's friends in the world now are people she's met from all over the country from those tours. Uh, it was it was a life changing experience for us, and it was a life changing experience for the people we met in the middle of very dark times. Yeah, Gert, you wanna?
2: Driving up to, when we left and then driving up to a city and seeing the hundreds of volunteers that were just so hungry for the quilt was such an incredible feeling. I can't even explain to you. I mean, the the four months that we were gone was probably the best four months of my life, except for the inaugural display in 87. It was the most memorable time I'll ever have. And the six people that joined me during that time I will forever love, and we were all so vastly different, vastly. Um, I would do anything for them. I mean, it really cemented our relationship. But some of the mothers, parents, lovers, I mean, all the people that we met on the tour, it's, it was just incredible. We met, I mean, it, it was really pretty incredible. I don't even know how to explain you know, how to explain it. I've met mothers who have, after that, have flown in to see me uh, in San Francisco and Atlanta after years and years later, just because they wanted to thank me. And like, like said, almost every single one of my friends is somebody that I'm really close with that I met in one of those in those twenty cities that we went to. It was an experience. And when we got back, what the great thing too was that it had. I could tell the city had healed when we came over that hill you know, in the Winnebago and got out of there, it was just a different city than what I left. And there was just the real excitement and I just loved it.
3: And we did those big outdoor displays all through the 80s and early 90s, the last one being in 96. Um, and, and really in the intervening years, uh, you, don't, you we don't do so many of the really big outdoor extravaganza displays in part because the people who come to those are people who are coming on purpose because they already are part of and understand the epidemic. We want to be using the quilt in a, in a, a little bit more of a guerrilla warfare kind of way. Uh, a display in an airport terminal where people get off the plane and are confronted with AIDS in the middle of their daily life. Um, displays in high schools and college campuses where young people who, you know, think they're immortal and are out right now not wearing masks uh, are confronted with mortality and confronted with beauty and love in response to a community illness. And that. That's been our message then, and it works today as well, that when we're in these kind of medical crises, you respond with love and compassion and healing and not with bigotry and fear. And that's the message the quilt has taken all over the country for 33 years.
0: Right. Talk if you would a bit about that very first time in Washington in 87 when this was you know, put out. What was you, you said the people who tend to come to those things are the, you know, the folks who, who already kind of know about it. Was that the, the first time? Was that who was, it was attracting? Were there Congress members who were there? I mean, who, who was coming there, and what was the impact for you and, and the others you know who worked on this?
3: Yeah, that display was specifically scheduled to be during the National March on Washington for Gay and Lesbian Rights on October 11, 1987. And mm-hmm. we, Gert and I and a bunch of people— got out there at midnight in the dark and laying out walkways in the dark not sure that all, that they're going to line up and that when the sun comes up there's going to be a quilt but there yeah. was and uh the unfolding was at dawn um 7:11 in the morning October 11th and um we had a, a few thousand people around the perimeter who came out at dawn to see it it was predominantly uh for the for that unfolding it was predominantly panel makers and others who had flown in just to be there with us but over the course of that day that march attracted Half a million people from all walks of life, LGBT from all across the country. And as they came up to the mall to the speeches at the far end, they literally had to walk almost through the quilt. And you know, you'd have people out there rallying and cheering and making noise, and they would come up to the edge of the quilt and it would go amazingly silent. The reverence of the fabric was breathtaking, and people would stop their reverie and And sort of paced themselves through it and were in tears by the end. And I think that that was the visual image from that civil rights march. It defined, AIDS at that time defined that civil rights march. Um, Dozens, hundreds, thousands of AIDS organizations, community-based AIDS organizations all over the country started that day. Over the course of the winter of 87 and 88, nearly every AIDS organization you know of now that's community-based was formed. Because of the impact the quilt had that day, and because of the energy that came off that rally, with people going back to their communities charged up, it was amazing.
2: Yeah, I amazing. don't think we or anybody else knew what kind of impact we were going to have. At least I, you know, we we were laying down some quilt, you know, and and that was that. And but. Then when the march started coming up, I remember, you know, we thought they were going to walk. They, we thought they would not even notice it and walk on it. And they, so um, I think Mike, you were up in the front or something. It was, weren't they linking, linked arms to keep uh, the people from off. We were, from...
3: we were worried that people weren't going to even see it and step right yeah. onto it. So we had a little bit of a barricade, but we didn't really have to do it. The sea just kind of parted, and and oh. and it was, it was remarkable, it was remarkable. Yeah.
2: Uh, but yeah. I, yeah, but no, I don't we, think anybody realized—not least of all us—that it was that the impact that we were going to have and that, that we were going to steal the show. I mean, we were on every newspaper, you
3: know. When... We were above the fold in every yeah. paper in the world. Every paper in the world the next day, and um, for a lot of small town and middle America, their newspaper had not run a story about AIDS. They had not used the word AIDS in a newspaper story or on the local news, and for that one night, and that next morning. AIDS was above the fold in every newspaper in every small town and on every evening news, local evening news in all sorts of small cities. And that had to have given hope to LGBT kids growing up, seeing themselves there. And it certainly gave hope to people living with HIV all over the country who felt like finally their country was paying
2: attention. So the Washington Post, they had their article or the front page was the quilt that woke up America. And that's kind of what we did.
3: And there was a great cartoon the next day of Ronald Reagan, who of course hadn't used the word AIDS for years and dodged the issue repeatedly. Um, someone had sketched out a, a black and white cartoon in the paper showing the quilt laid out all across America and Ronald Reagan asleep under it in Washington D.C., <laughs> oblivious. And it it summed up the whole it summed up the whole situation perfectly in one illustration.
2: And then, like when you you said. You know, when we came back, we didn't know. What, I I thought it was just going to be closed up. And then yeah. the, all the people that had gone there were calling you guys saying, you know. You were still we were working part-time at time Macy's. <laughs> you had to going
3: <laughs> to save the world, I was going to go back to you work. going <laughs> back to selling cosmetics at the Macy's. <laughs> <That's right. laughs>
1: John, John, I think you wanted oh. to add some things. But, like, just like uh, Mike had said, and, uh, you, you know, the quilt, Changed America in a lot of ways, and, and you brought people affected by HIV/AIDS. You humanized, you know, what, what was going on. Um, but I also think that uh, what I always love to talk about is just this shift, the change when you finally get federal recognition, and uh, you know, people who were sick, who were dying, and, and ignored, you know, by uh, leaders of their government. I'd I'd love to talk about, you know, that, that shift when, when once you had leaders actually care, once we were able to bring humans together, what were some of the uh, policy changes or, you know, not even just from an attitude point of view, but like what started happening locally, um, statewide, you know, federally, it just sounds like people were being held accountable and things had to change.
4: I think you're right. You know, I mean, uh, out of the AIDS crisis and out of San Francisco as well, there are so many lessons that have been um, not only learned, but policies that have been changed, you know, remembering back to those dark days, uh, you know, you couldn't, if you were the partner of somebody that was ill at SF general or a hospital, you couldn't go in and see them. Uh, You couldn't spend time with them. You couldn't hold their hands. And those are some of the things that that have changed, you know, in addition, you know, how drugs come to market, how, how you start, how the CDC looks at things. I mean, you know, I I don't want to draw these parallels, but I think that we would be remiss if we didn't touch on them, that, you know, the thread that is pulled from one pandemic to another, um, the question I think that we need to look at is, have we learned the lessons? Um, and have we, or have we forgotten them or set them on the shelf? And that's really what the power of the quilt is and what the commitment that we have as the stewards to the future is not only to teach and educate and inform uh, the next generations as to what happened in the epidemic. But even more importantly, the quilt is perhaps the most powerful social justice teaching tool that was ever created, because it was an activist tool. It went out and it through as as you've said, Michelle, through humanizing, through making it real, through making it an, an individual. Because when you look at those panels, you see a person, and it's much different than just a name. And so, you know, our commitment is, uh, you know, and through through the quilt is to take it back out. Uh, to strategically targeted areas that are in need of this, because the quilt is also a miracle teacher in the sense that it was, cre- it's creation as being uh, something that is so iconic to our culture. It can enter communities when, where other things can't, and it can bring communities out and begin conversations. So you know, Jackson, Mississippi, highest infection rates in our country. The quilt needs to go there. It needs to pull that community out. It needs to start some conversations. But we're also working to ensure that we stay relevant into the next generation and leveraging technology. And I I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge uh, your sponsor of this uh, this, uh, conversation today, Gilead, as well as Gilead, who helped make sure that the quilt will be secured in perpetuity as our preservation partner. And we are committed to taking the quilt and transferring it into a technological sphere so that the quilt can actually go out technologically, virtually through to the world. Um, you know, when we became the stewards, there are over 200,000 pieces of archival material that are in addition to the panel, that back up the panel, that are the leather, letters from the mother, that are the war medals, that are the actual remains of the individual being memorialized. And we entered into a, into a relationship with the Library of Congress, and all of those uh, archival materials have been transferred to the custodianship of the library. We retain the rights to them, but we put them in the largest open source. Library in the world and we are in the process of digitizing them all so they can then be linked to the quilt So not only you can go to a quilt panel that's in high res and bring it up But there will be an icon on that quilt panel that you can open up a folder and you can read the letters from the mothers and from the lovers and the Newspaper articles and the the commendation that the individual has because that's the future um, Because we must keep it alive. We must not repeat uh, the lessons of the uh, the mistakes of the past and and as Mike and Gert also know, we've uh, been contacted by many in this current pandemic that have asked, how did you do this? Because we need to create panels for the individuals that died alone, uh, just for the loving nurses at their side um, in COVID, as those young, young boys did in the days of the early days of the epidemic as well.
1: Thank you so much for that. And that, and that basically brings us, you know, it's a great uh, segue uh, question and the, the quilt is coming home. to to San Francisco after X amount of years. I'd mentioned that while reading uh, Mike's bio. So what does that uh, mean? What does it mean when the the quilt is coming home after so many years? And I think coming from Atlanta, um, Mike.
3: Well, the the quilt is coming home, but in my world, it's mostly Gert is coming home. (laughs) (laughs) It's lived and breathed the quilt for 33 years. And she moved to Atlanta when the quilt moved there years ago. Uh, and as has, as you can see, has come back with it here and continuing in its next phase. Um, where the quilt is based isn't necessarily relevant. It's a it's a it's a library system. It's a, it's shelves and shelves of quilt that can be done like a check in check out system that travel all over the world all the time. The so the physicality of it isn't necessarily the crux of it, but the the emotional heart of the quilt has always been here, um, where mm-hmm. it started. This remains the community most responsive to a call for volunteers, for instance, where more panel makers are from here than other parts of the country. By by coming back here and by having it having the resources of the National AIDS Memorial and being partnered with the Grove, it gives us an opportunity to re-envision how we do displays, what we do technologically, and it automatically comes with a core team of volunteers and, and community Relations and community resources that are going to be able to catapult us into the next decade,
1: and then Kurt, you coming home. Um, I, I guess we should mention it, it. You know that being the conservator for for so many years and we're and preserving, you know the the quilt, um, and now we're in this this pandemic. You continue. I think to, to keep the spirit of the quilt alive and, you know, being there for our community members. And the, I think it was John who had briefly mentioned it, uh, but talk about how, uh, you're continuing, you know, the work and um, what your support looks like here during this pandemic.
2: You mean with the mask. Well, yeah, I think John tells a story of why I started it better. Um, when I made the phone call to you,
4: Yeah, we had had a board meeting and um, one of our board members um, had informed us in the board meeting that uh, he had tested positive to COVID. And this was in the very early days. And um, the board meeting ended and I got a call from Gert and she was broken down. And she said, I don't know what I will do in this pandemic uh, because I cannot be with individuals. I cannot touch them. I cannot hold them. I cannot lay in the hospital bed next to them and comfort them. Um, I don't know what to do. And I said, well, you know, I hear you get some sleep and let's talk in the morning. And she called in the morning and she said, I know how to sew. I can make masks. And so I'll turn it over to to Gert. But that's how I got it.
2: So, so, yeah, so I, I I was just remembering all of the nurses during the the horrible years, in the eighties and nineties and how they just would do anything for my friends. And I just wanted, I thought I, maybe I can, help them in some small way. So I decided to just, I know how to sew who would have thought it would have come up again. It's another another pandemic and I'm sewing, but I, -hmm. and I specifically wanted it to go to the nurses. I made, I made them out of the fabric here that we have at the names project that was uh, supposed to be for um, making panels. People have donated it for 20 odd years. I've, you know, and we have scraps all over the place. And so I thought, well, I should use that fabric and, um, and I made them so that an N95 mask fits inside of that mask, so that it protects them. I really didn't know if they would even want them or not, the nurses, if they would be that helpful to them. But, and I also admit, said, you know, I really shouldn't have had to been doing it. The government should have been supplying all these. But if I what little, little I can do for those nurses just has brought me so much joy. And um, so I continue to do that and bring them to St. Mary's and UCSF and uh, generally weekly, I'll bring them a hundred or so each. And and,
3: um, and you've inspired about a dozen of our longtime volunteers who sew to start yeah. working from their home. This is something people could do despite sheltering in place. And we yeah. worked out a little drop off system where they put them in the bin yeah. outside the warehouse and Bert scoops them yeah. up and we take them around in, in the back of my car, or we take them around to the hospitals.
2: Yeah, because they came uh, up with at least a thousand. I would say that, that the other volunteers they dropped them off, and then Mike would bring them in uh, to the uh, community center there. But um, and there's still still other people are making them, and I know a lot of people around, around and my friends are making them. So, um, but but it really has been really heartwarming.
3: You yeah, know, when we first know. got media attention for Gertz,
2: it has not
3: So incredible to But the uh, wonderful thing, somebody, somebody, somebody. Uh, got the impression that that we were using yeah. fabric from the quilt, and and <laughs> Cleveland and I got repurposing <laughs> <laughs> it from people
2: saying, "We're up the quilt to make math." Yes.
3: <laughs> no, we're not.
2: <laughs> I do want to mention too, though, that John has allowed me to do that. I mean, when I said I wanted to, yeah, I could do it on my own time too, but he he said, "Yes, do it, do it." So it was really, I can't I can't thank him enough for that because it, it really helped me out a lot. And help the community
4: out too. Yeah, and aside from aside from the nurses, she's also we've also supplied them to uh, Acceptance Place, which is one of the the Baker Places uh, recovery homes for uh, LGBT individuals, as well as um, uh, Bay Area um, Bay Area Mac. What is it? Services community community services, which supports a myriad of different congregant living groups, uh, battered women, um, substance abuse. So. You know, it's been really a powerful, a powerful expression of love. And that's what the quilt is. That's what the grove is. And I believe that at the center and the heart of what uh, these two projects and others have, have, have created, it is comes out of a place of, of love. And I think if there's anything that our world right now needs, it's a little bit more love and compassion. And. Flamingos.
2: Well, that's what the nurses said. They, they said the that, what they, yeah. they love the most about it was that it came from fabric that was supposed to be made, a panel was supposed to be made for. And they're so special that way. So they've, they've really just, you know, they grab them when I come and give them to them. So it's, it's really been great.
0: That is great. Um, we have a question from the audience, and this is getting to you know particularly moving panels in the quilt that you've seen. We could, I'm sure, talk the entire hour just about that. So let me just ask maybe each one of you, what are one or two of them that you've seen that, yeah, I, I almost feel we're not going to get out of this without all of us sobbing. Getting, yeah. one, one or two of them that, that are, were particularly moving for you and why?
2: Well, I'll, I'll start. There's actually one right behind John. You can't see it very well right now, but it's for Scott Vincente. And it is, it's a beautiful panel and it's a partial partial nude. It's his back and you can see his butt. And then there's these beautiful angel wings coming out of it. But the most beautiful part about that is when I opened it up. And I can usually tell when some, like a lover's made a panel or a mother. And I, I thought that was a lover's. And I started to read the letter and I realized it was his mother that made that. You know, a partial nude and I, I had to call her and just tell her, you know, if you made this, you are the best mother I have ever met. And I, I met a lot of mothers in my life. I said that you could go past who he, that he was gay, past and in that you loved him that much to make that. And she said, well, you know, he was a beautiful, beautiful boy. And it's just so, anyway, she ended up flying. I asked her if I could hold it for a while until I found enough beautiful ones to surround it in beauty. And uh, then once I did, she actually flew out to meet me after she saw it. I can't remember
0: what city she was from, but it
3: was just, just, it's just an incredible panel. Wow. Mike? I, uh, one of my favorite panels was turned in near the very beginning. uh, When, right at that moment, when I think we all realized this wasn't going to be a summer project, that this was going to be our life's work. And that whatever plans we had were going to be put on hold because of the epidemic. Um, It's an Edward, it's a, it's a a panel made to look like an Edward Gorey comic with the duck walking in the rain, holding the umbrella. Um, and it, yeah. and it's just some it's at the time I saw it, I thought it just summed up my life. It just says, uh, last night, I did not think that today it would be raining. And I think at that moment that yes. so summed up the gay yes. community and, and so much of the AIDS epidemic at the time that one day we were gloriously happy. And the next day it was raining.
0: John, how about I, you?
4: Um, I, I'll actually use a little bit of a current day, um, a story you know there uh, on average one panel still arrives uh, about every day um at the names project so that's you know 365 so some on a year and what's what people are finding or what we're finding is that um you know either there are nephews or nieces that uh, they knew their uncle had passed away of veins so or they figured it out but back in the day their, the parents couldn't admit and they wouldn't allow it to be met admitted and they wouldn't allow it to be talked about and so they're now paying homage and honoring that that perhaps that uncle that was lost. Or in other, there's been other situations where uh, after the final uh, passing of, of, of a parent and the family is going through the closets and they're pulling things out and they're closing down the home and they come upon the panel that mom and dad made and they made it for their son. But they put so much of their love into that panel, they could never let it go. And so those are some of what are coming our way, uh, you know, now. Um, when, when the, when the quilt was in Atlanta, there was an amazing project that was created and it's called the call my name project, uh, because the internalized stigma as well within the African American black community in those days was tough. And so it's a mad, they have been working to, with, um, places of worship and faith to bring the community together and to honor those lives and to call those names, uh, once and for all, and to, to pro- properly and appropriately honor them. So I think it's interesting to see how what's coming now uh with uh, the uh, recognition that we've gotten over the last uh, six or eight months, we're seeing more and more come. So, Can I tell um, you
2: one more story?
4: Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. There was a panel that was being made for Ted. And I, I know Mike will remember it. It had his, it had his mustache on the side, it's kind of the side of his face, and it said, Ted. This guy had been working on this panel forever, mm-hmm. and then he just didn't show up. And we kept waiting and waiting for him to show up. And we're like, oh, my God, what happened? And this happened a lot. You know, we'd be stuck with, not stuck with the panel, but the panel would be left and the person would get sick and die. And so that's what we thought had happened. So Scott Lago and myself and another person, we decided we were going to finish it. The Moscone Center uh, Center of display was coming up. And so we finished it. And when uh, we put it out on display, and as we're walking around, I noticed I was walking past and I was going to show that panel to somebody, and I noticed that somebody was kneeling down beside it. And it was the guy who had mm. made it, who had started it. And he was crying. And I went, I, first I said, I go, you look familiar. And he, turn, and when he turned around and went, oh, my God. He, and he was just crying. And he said, I knew it couldn't be here. It wouldn't be here. I couldn't finish it. And who finished this, you know? But it was so beautiful that he had shown up and he was still okay. He didn't look really good, but he had made it. So it was a really special moment.
0: John, uh, someone, one of our viewers, actually almost following up on what you were talking about, asks how how would they go about submitting one today? Would that be sending? You know, can you give them an address or a contact number, name, a number, or something?
4: So you can uh, you can email me uh, directly uh, or Gert um, J Cunningham at aids a i d s memorial dot o r g or G McMullen at aids memorial dot o r g. Or you can go to uh, our website at AIDSMemorial.org, and it it can give you everything you need to know about how to create a panel. Uh, Gert can act as an advisor and consultant and help you with that. So don't uh, ever feel that uh, if you don't work with that part of your brain, uh, which I usually don't, uh, Gert can help you get to that part of the brain and uh, help you to, to be creative. We actually have been working with, uh, she's working with uh, Joyce Gordon at Gordon Gallery in Oakland, um, who lost her brother to help her uh, for a panel that uh, may be displayed during the, the International AIDS Conference that will be here in San Francisco and Oakland or virtually uh, hosted by those two cities.
0: Well, I have one uh, another one I wanted to throw in, and this is more just whenever we're talking about just how huge this thing is. And when you read about it, the, I mean, 54 tons uh, the, the number of train cars or whatever it took to, to move it across country. Um, when you do, now you said you're not really doing the the full uh, layout anymore, but I mean, what, for the ones you do, how big, for the displays you do, how big do they tend to be and how long does it take to set that up? And, and uh, who does it and how many people, all that? Kind of, just kind of get into some of the metrics, if you will, about this huge project.
3: It's It is 54 tons. It's five railway cars. Uh, but it's also small and personal. And and we were able to do that years ago because each panel is three feet by six feet and eight of them get sewn together into a block that's 12 feet by 12 feet. And then the grommets are put in like shoelace holes all the way around, which means when we do a big display, what you're seeing is not one big quilt. What you're seeing is uh, hundreds or dozens of these sections laced together to give that impression. So if somebody only has room in their... You know, If the Jewish Community Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama wants to do some HIV awareness work and wants a section of QUILT, we have a database that we can get into and pull up what the right panel is. If they only have room for one section, we can make sure that the one that they get has references to Alabama and Jewish stars in that section because we've cataloged it all as we've gone. So whether it's one section of QUILT, which often happens, or even a, even five or six in a gymnasium in a high school we can make sure that that experience is personal and local for the people who are seeing it we want them to see themselves when they look at the quilt yeah. and it doesn't and you know we we had planned we had a lot of plans until shelter in place came along we had plans we were going to do a big display in Golden Gate Park that's been put on hold um and that was going to be the si- same size and shape as that first display in 1987 about 2,000 sections of quilt, but it was going to be the most recent 2,000 panels, not the historic ones that are 33 years old, to, give, to help people understand where the epidemic is now and who the people are that we're losing now. And it's a shame that that got put on hold, but um, someday we'll have a big display again in, center, in, in Golden Gate Park once we can all gather again together.
2: But having the entire thing out, I think that would take, I think, all of the mall and the ellipse, probably.
3: Yeah. yeah. I, I, I think the days of, of an entire oh, no. display like 96 are long gone. Yeah, I, 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 uh, in part because that display in 1996 was three days long. It was a mile long from the Washington Monument to the steps of the Capitol and all the way up under the trees on the on the mall. Uh, that took 11,512 volunteers.
4: Well,
3: and right. you just... You know, first of all, the quilt goes nowhere without volunteers. It sits on a shelf and is useless unless we have people to help us put together displays for shipping and coordinate those displays when they happen in communities. So um, we probably will never do the whole quilt again, but there are still opportunities to do some some big displays once we can do that again.
4: And if I if I may, um, and I won't I won't give the date when this is happening because we don't want people to come and congregate. But uh, during the International AIDS Conference, which will be uh, the 6th through the 10th um, virtually, but San Francisco and Oakland, during that week, the quilt will be hanging from both Oakland and San Francisco's City Hall. So I invite anybody to go with your family and or your close safety cohort and experience it hanging from the front of those city halls and be able to really uh, get the feel. Um, And that is an opportunity for for those two cities that have worked so hard the local planning group, the international Aid Society, to bring this conference to the bay area uh to to see uh, have a little bit of local satisfaction of something has been accomplished and we've worked hard to get there
0: that's perfect timing, John because someone had just asked one of our viewers had asked to get some more info about how the uh, quilt and the eighth twenty twenty conference would uh kind of be connected and be used
4: yeah there's a couple of uh, other I, a couple of other things that will be happening as well mike, did you want to uh, I was just
3: going to say that um parts of the International AIDS Conference are open to the public. You can go to AIDS 2020 website and sign up to go through the Global Village and experience the the virtual workshop we've created with quilt activities going on. And the same thing can be said for hundreds of community-based organizations who are gonna be um, doing displays and works for the public in that portion of the conference.
4: And in addition to that, we uh, will be um, on display in the arts and culture section of the local planning group, part of the Global Village. Uh, Two weekends ago, we filmed with drones in Golden Gate Park, uh, a a traditional opening ceremony going from the lotus uh, fold of the quilt uh, with the 24 by 24 uh, unfolding ceremony. And you'll be able to view that uh, from the Global Village, as well as the 100 Faces of AIDS, uh, which was done by Jim Wegler. Uh, in the early days of the epidemic uh, is, will also be on display, as well as many others. And I know that uh, Frameline, uh, Michelle has been doing some work with Frameline. There will also be some great opportunities for stuff coming out of the, the conference there as well.
1: That's amazing. Uh, we've got about uh, 12 minutes left, and i was saving you know, just this part of the conversation for the winding down moment. Um, so, John, any other comments, questions from our audience?
0: Well, I wanted to ask about the 96 uh, in Washington Because, of course, what did it mean to have the president and first lady come to it, especially after, you know, Reagan and George Bush had been very AWOL on this whole topic? I think AWOL is being kind.
4: It
3: meant the world to us um, and, and to the AIDS community nationwide for a sitting president to actually come and walk among the quilt and talk with visitors and talk with people living with AIDS Uh, at at that moment. Um, I kind of felt like I thought there was going to be that breakthrough on that one day in 1987. And we waited 10 years to get to the point where our government showed they cared. And it was a remarkable moment. I got to spend some time with Cleve took Bill and I took Hillary and we did a little walk through the quilt and all. And um, just as we were wrapping up, uh, they, she, they were ducking her head to get her into the car, and she popped back out. They were on a little part of the mall where you're just a little higher than everything else. And she looked down the length of the mall and she said, "You know, everyone in this country knows somebody on this quilt. They just don't know that they do, and that's the work we have to do." And it was just a wonderful moment.
2: Well,
1: it's 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 a good you know segue again to my question for you, um, and and each of you, please answer this. We talked about the history, we talked about what's happening now, we talked about uh, ways that you're responding now, and the quilt is coming home, the National AIDS Memorial is the stewards, if you will, of the, the project, and you talked about, you know, the panels that would be made for those we lose today. Even if you were not experiencing what was going on in the 80s, seeing the panels, Reading about the quilt evokes emotions that you realize, like how how horrible and tragic this really, really was in our history. And you want you say to yourself, as you know, a neighbor, as a, a child of someone, uh, uh, as a as a friend of uh, or a community member, that we never want this to happen again. And so I'd love for you to answer, you know, what this means for uh, the future, even if a lot of your work is, uh, is also focused on our history. And we are, we're not able to ho- hold the uh, International AIDS Conference, but it's happen- happening virtually. And so the discussion, the work is necessary, and we continue on. So talk about that, uh, the importance of continuing on. I'll start with Gert.
2: I'll start with Mike. I'll
3: start with Mike. um, I I think that I often say that that the work that we did was not so much about the sewing, as it was about setting an example and being a catalyst and showing people that in the midst of even the darkest times, you can find something to do. You know the old Margaret Mead quote that a small group of committed individuals can change the world in fact they're the only thing that ever does and you know i feel that very deeply that so much of the work we we're doing is creating space for other people to act even if they don't have a medical skill set for instance right now there are still things they can do they can go to a food bank and and stock groceries for for people who are unemployed at this moment there are there are always ways to respond and there and I think we helped people see their own internal creativity. And that carries forward uh, to this day and into the future. Sure.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I've always looked at the quilt, like it wasn't as, it is about the people on the quilt, but it's so much more about the people who made the quilt. Um, like Margaret said, it really became an emotional support kind of place. And I think that if people could get into that kind of headset for this pandemic, they could be useful. I mean like I said, who would have thought that I could sow for this pandemic and there's always something you can do uh, to help your community? And that's, I think what was what I needed. I just needed my community to grab me and hug me and say, you know, I'm hurting too, and I'll help you. It's kind of what we did.
4: You know as um, as our nation's only federally designated memorial to AIDS, um, you know we we hold uh, dearly the responsibility to ensure, that when we are all gone and we as the storytellers have moved on and that, uh, that there is a way that the stories of the epidemic will live on because the greatest way that we can memorialize and remember and honor the lives lost as well as those that worked so diligently and hard to bring about change is to ensure that the story lives on. You know, And unfortunately the AIDS crisis um, brought out both the worst and the best in humanity. Uh, you know, it was rooted in stigma and discrimination and prejudice and marginalization and otherisms. And unfortunately, there's a lot of those threads that we are living with today. But on the other side of that, it was also rooted in the greatest sense of love and compassion and community and activism and bringing about change and leaving a better world. So we've been we've been at the National AIDS Memorial for the last number of years, and we're embarking on a new five year strategic planning process. Actually, the kickoff is immediately following this this, this Zoom, um, and we've had, we've been working very hard to look at the future, and uh, we are committed to ensuring that we honor those lives. And we've been investigating and exploring uh, creating a center, a center that will be rooted in social justice and human rights and how those lessons are, um, are shared with future generations, because that's our obligation. There are only 44 memorials, and there are some memorials that must tell stories uh, into the future, and usually those stories that they're telling are societal stories, where society responded or needed to respond or need, can learn from that. Because my objective as the executive director today is those that follow, that, that when a family comes to San Francisco with a young child, And they visit somewhere that that child will be moved so that they will see where the injustices in in society and humanity exist later in life. And they will get off the sidelines like so many did in the AIDS crisis and help to create a better world.
1: Wow, that's so powerful. And we're going to end the show because that was, you know. (laughs) (laughs)
0: We're not going to top that.
1: Yeah, no. Well, we got about five minutes left. Um, John, do you have a last question before I ask mine?
0: No, I want to hear your question
1: we started out by talking about uh Cleve, Cleve jones who you know the marching a candlelight march and written the names of of people that he had lost and anytime you actually talk to Cleve about um how the epidemic uh impacted him i mean it's 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 powerful it's moving and then at the same time uh you could still hear the pain and so i think that in closing would love to um, ask you, you know, what would Cleave say to a 23-year-old version of, of himself uh, today with regards to where we're at in our, our movement? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a tough question. He'd, be, he'd probably say something similar to what John had said, but it would be something like, you know, get off your effing ass. That's what it would be. We, we have work to do. Yeah.
3: Um, that's for sure. Um, you know, uh, we're, we're uh, Cleve is alive and well and sheltered in place in Guerneville right now. So, um, you know, I, I may call him up after this and say, what would you say? Uh, but, you know, I know that, it, that he's an extraordinarily powerful speaker. And I, and I know that uh, he would find a way to reach into that person and bring out the best in them. Um, and inspire them to do something um, to move the country forward on on an issue like AIDS or on any any civil rights or social justice issue. Um, he's he can be very still very angry about those early days of HIV, and I think Kurt and I have our moments where we're still angry too. Uh, you know, that it was a horrible time, and and our government did not respond well. And um, Cleve has spent his life. Since the Names Project, tackling lots of other social justice issues and working with, uh, with, uh, uh hotel workers, unions and others, giving, giving rights and, and, working on social justice issues, uh, in communities that, that really need that as well. Um, he's been an inspiration to me my whole life. He certainly convinced me to put my life on hold and follow him <laughs> <laughs> all those years ago. Uh, and so I'm always in deeply in debt to him for that. And a little angry at him, too, sometimes for that, times for that.
4: <laughs> and I would never, I would never uh, attempt to uh, to speak for Cleve uh put words <laughs> in Cleve's mouth. Um, however, I can I can say that, um, you know, one of the greatest blessings that I've had over the last uh, year and a half of navigating uh, this journey forward was the opportunity uh, to get closer to and get to know Cleve. Um you know, and to know uh, the angry activists, but also to know the soft and human humanist that's there. And I think that um, if there's anything that I believe uh, one of the greatest things that Cleve leaves uh, for all of us, and but especially for young people, is that we we can and they can, uh, through stepping out of their own place of fear, uh, bring about meaningful change. I believe that, uh, that that is one of the greatest gifts that he's given, whether it was... When he stood on the steps at City Hall after the assassination, or whether it be uh, standing at the on the stage for the for the quilt displays or whatever it was, um, I think that his words inspire, and his actions uh, inspire as well. So uh, I'm deeply, deeply grateful for uh, for what he has done and what Cle- what, what Mike and Gerd have also done. Um, and I am so honored and our organization is so humbled to continue in the work that was started by, by this, this tree, To agree.
0: Do you want to say anything about, uh, Cleve will actually be on a Commonwealth club program later this month?
1: And, yes, that concludes our program. Thank you so much for joining us for this special uh, talk. We have one coming up June 25th, and Cleve will be on there, in which uh, that is the last of our Lavender Series in partnership with San Francisco Pride, where we will be commemorating uh, all of their honorees, and Cleve is one this year. So make sure you check it. Out, you can RSVP for that talk at CommonwealthClub.org/slash MMS. And don't forget, we have a special program this Thursday coming up at noon, in which we'll discuss the Supreme Court decision and LGBTQ rights. Uh, and you can also RSVP at commonwealthclub.org org slash MMS. Thank you so much to all of you for joining us. Thank you to our sponsor, Gilead and Comcast. Thank you to AIDS 2020 or the International AIDS Conference. And lastly, thank you to the Commonwealth Club for, you know, partnering and putting on a platform for all these conversations for social justice. We'll see you next time.